This is A Lake at a Crossroads, and I'm Ingrid Thier. This is the second episode in a series of three podcasts exploring the wonders of Lake Wanaka, a vast and stunning freshwater lake nestled in the great southern Alps of New Zealand, and also the threats confronting the lake and the community's efforts to protect it. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to the first episode, go back and listen to it now. Before diving into Lake Wanaka, let's take a trip up to the North Island of New Zealand, to the lakes of Rotorua and Taupo. Like Wanaka, these are large freshwater lakes, though not located in an alpine region. Unlike Wanaka, however, they would not be considered pristine. Over the past 100 years of human settlement in the surrounding areas, the combined impacts of urban development and agriculture have made their mark, leading to soupy green messes in both lakes. Around about the year 2000, roughly, when Lake Taupo started changing colour, there was panic stations and there was something like 80-odd million dollars assigned to a project or two to fix Lake Taupo over a 10-year period. Lake, uh, the Rotorua lakes were even worse, and so if you combine the Taupo funding and the Rotorua lakes funding, it's about $220 million to try and fix the mess that was happening in those lakes through runoff. That was Don Robertson, a resident of Wanaka and head of the Guardians of Lake Wanaka, a group in charge of preserving the quality of Lake Wanaka's water. Clearly, there are bodies of water in far worse condition in New Zealand than Lake Wanaka. So why should we pour resources into protecting a lake that is widely considered to be pristine? Well, as Don pointed out, it's not only more environmentally sound, but also far more economically sound to protect rather than restore. Here's the freshwater ecologist, Mark Schallenberg, again. Often what happens is that our special lakes and other components of the environment don't get a lot of attention until they become degraded. And then people realize, "Uh uh-oh, we've lost something really special. How can we fix it? And the fixes are usually extremely expensive and painful as well. And, And we shouldn't actually be allowing these incredible ecosystems to degrade at all. We should be uh, using science, using our imaginations, using our understanding and knowledge to try and anticipate when things could, could go wrong and try to prevent them from happening. Mandy Bell of the Upper Clutha Lakes Trust feels similarly. So let's um, not look back in 20 years' time and say there was a period of growth. What were those people thinking about not doing anything? We'd all much rather be proactive than reactive from every which way that we look at it. So obviously the cost and the economics just pulls apart. Should we spend a couple of hundred million fixing it up in in 15, 20 years time, or should we be proactive and understand better the challenges that we've got? So the argument to protect Lake Wanaka rather than restore it has a lot of support among both the science community and town residents. But in order to protect it, we need to know the current condition of the lake and also what the threats are. Unfortunately, consistent monitoring of the lake has been very sparse up until now. The tool that a lot of people used, or index, is a a thing called the trophic level index where researchers measure four attributes. And those attributes are chlorophyll A, phosphorus, nitrogen, and transparency. Don explained that according to this trophic level index used by the local government, Lake Wanaka and other similar lakes in the region remain in excellent condition. But this index may be missing a lot. What we don't know is about all of the things that aren't being measured. No one is really measuring in the lakes viruses, bacteria or protozoans. In terms of the trophic level index, 
three deep water lakes are, are pristine, excellent. Uh, but in terms of what they're not measuring, we don't know. So that, that's an issue. We don't actually have good long-term data sets. We're only starting to get some good information, some reliable information about the state of the lakes. And so good monitoring information is like essential to understand what's been going on, what's the state, what's the trend that's happening in these lakes. So I've been driving that quite hard with the authorities who are supposed to be looking after the, the lakes that they need to raise their game in terms of how they monitor these lakes, both in terms of the frequency of monitoring, the chemical methods they use, because lakes that are so pure have particular challenges in terms of measuring the chemical constituents of the water there. And it's tempting to just say, well, if the levels of nitrogen and phosphorus are so low, then we obviously don't have a problem, so we don't need to worry. But what we want to know is, is there a trend? You know, are they trending upward? Um, and if these lakes are really sensitive, then maybe even small changes in the nutrient concentrations could lead to big changes in the way the lakes function. Moreover, longtime resident John Darby has serious doubts about the actual state of Lake Wanaka. You may recognize his voice as that of the lake from episode one. So it all comes back to what do we really mean by a pristine lake? It's considered a pristine lake. But it's far from that, in my opinion. It is infested with Lagrosphysum, an invasive lakeweed that smothers out the native lake vegetation. And the lake is also infested with a diatom, sometimes called an algae, but more commonly known as lake snot. In 2013, the Otago Regional Council reported that the nitrate, nitrite, and nitrogen levels in the Great Matukituki River were more than double the national standard and that the E. coli count also exceeds the proposed new standards. As far as I'm aware, absolutely nothing has been done about this. And then you have examples like one that just recently occurred this year, when a scientist working with a citizen science project with children discovered raw sewage being drained into the lake with consequent high levels of E. coli in one of the most favoured swimming areas in the lake. That had been going on for second years, seven years, and nobody had picked it up. This lack of knowledge about the past and present conditions of the lake has an interesting psychological side to it as well. Here's Simone Langhens, a freshwater ecologist currently based out of the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand, and affiliated with the Basque Centre for Climate Change in Spain. So the phrase shifting baseline syndrome describes kind of an incremental lowering of standards, that results um, with each new generation that they lack knowledge of the historical and maybe more natural condition of the environment that has that the environment was in before. So each generation defines what is natural according to their personal experiences, right? So with each generation, the expectations of various ecological conditions, they shift towards being less natural. So the result is that our standards in general are lowered and sometimes almost imperceptibly because Lake Monaco is still in a quite pristine condition, I would say, although there have been some changes, which is a good, actually a good time to capture the baseline before it starts shifting. Despite the lack of good scientific monitoring occurring in Lake Wanaka right now, several threats to the lake have been identified and broadly fall into three categories, 
the arrival of invasive weeds, rapid urban growth, and agricultural impacts. Probably the, the biggest change has, has been happening over the last 14 years or so, and that, that's been the, the appearance and rise of pest plants. So I'm not sure exactly when the South African lakeweed lagrosiphon arrived, but it arrived and spread rapidly, and it's, it's a huge problem in many parts of the lake, although there is a very active and successful program to manage it. And the other big change from around about 2004 has been the arrival of a microorganism, a diatom called, or common name anyway, lake snow. Lake snow is really the mucopolysaccharide extrusion that these little cells make. As this lake snot alga has shown us, that an invasive species that's you know, no one can see with the naked eye can have huge impacts on people. The lake snow does affect water, the drinking water supply, so it's, it clogs people's water filters on their washing machines or if they might have their own drinking water filter that they filter their water through, it clogs these filters incredibly rapidly. The council that supplies water to the township is actually working to um, figure out how to pre-treat the water that has slime in it to remove the slime so that the people in the township don't have this problem of rapidly clogging water filters. You can't really separate a lake from its catchment. We tend to look at a lake and think, oh, there's a lake, and then we look at the land and we say, there's the land, and we have the land and we have the lake. But if you study lakes, you realize that the lakes are intimately connected to the land because of rainfall. Land use, the way we um, treat the land, the way we use the land, can have a big influence on what gets washed into the lake. And one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to farm. So fertilizers on the land means fertilizers are going to get into the water. Plowing up the land means soil is going to run off into the water as well. So those sorts of activities can really influence a lake by transferring nitrogen and phosphorus, the main nutrients that we worry about in lakes, and by transferring sediment or soil particles from the land into the, into the lake ecosystems. We also have urban land use. So that means when you have developments, you have more houses, you have more impermeable surfaces. Instead of grasses or soils, you've got roofs and you've got driveways and roads. So the water doesn't really trickle down into the soil. It just runs off. So this water rushing through our gutters and down our roads and over the car parks and everything eventually comes into the lake and can bring those contaminants into the lake as well. So basically, we've got this really awesome lake that is special both in the objective sense from an ecological perspective and also subjectively from the perspective of the community and visitors. But the irony is that that very specialness has drawn thousands of people to it, creating new problems and augmenting old ones. Now the question becomes, can the lake and its amazing qualities be saved for future generations to enjoy? And if so, how? Well over 50 years ago, it was a village. Now it's a town, but it is growing so fast that before too many years, it will be a city. This podcast was created, edited, and produced by Ingrid Thier, Simone Langhans, and Mark Schallenberg. The music was created by Chris Selbach. Many thanks to Don Robertson, Mark Schallenberg, Mandy Bell, John Darby, and Simone Langhans for taking the time to talk with me. 
This work has been made possible through the support of the University of Otago in New Zealand, Williams College in the US, and the Mary Curie Fellowship from the European Commission.